We're continuing our series in 1 Peter. Um, we're going to be in, looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Um, and, uh, but before we dive into that, I want you to think about um, breakfast for a minute. Um, and, and if you think about, breakfast is an interesting meal, because obviously all meals, there's lots of different choices. Um, but, but breakfast is kind of unique in that uh, there's such a, a wide range um, in, in the nutritional value and the lasting energy of the breakfast choices that you have, right? On, on one end, you have maybe like a uh, uh, like scrambled eggs or like uh, a protein shake or something like that, something that that's that's good for you that that will give you lasting energy through the day. That you'll you'll get to lunchtime and you'll think like, oh, I guess it's lunchtime. I guess I should probably eat lunch, but you really don't need to because you have. You had some good protein and stuff in the morning. And on the other end of the spectrum, um, you have a donut, right? And if you choose that for breakfast, uh, you're done with your day at 10 a.m., <laughs> right? Time for a nap, right? It's not, it's not good. Um, and, and I thought of that because uh, we'll be talking about hope in, uh, today in, in this passage, um, and, and I think that the that oftentimes the, the spiritual hope that we are offered um, is on a similar spectrum, right? You have this, this lasting, sustained, solid hope, and then you have this hope that is real flimsy, right? It's real short-sighted, not lasting, uh, because it's not just not founded in Scripture, it's, it's founded on platitudes and, and sayings that are meant to make you feel good and those kind of things. But when, you, but when that kind of hope brushes up against the hardness of life, the harshness that we face every day, the darkness that we see in the world, that falls apart real quick. And we'll see that today as we go through this passage, uh, this alternative lasting hope that Peter speaks of in this passage. We'll look first at verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter starts off the content of his letter. Last week, we looked at just verses 1 and 2, which are basically uh, the to and from uh, verses, that just uh, from Peter to these people. We talked about that for a whole sermon. Um, uh, but now he's starting the real content of his letter, and he starts with praise, right? He says, blessed be the, Lord, the, the Father of our Lord and God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's always a good place to start, to remember what God has done for us, to praise him for who he is. And then he dives into this, this long sentence with a lot of different clauses uh, and, and ca causality kind of things. Um, and it says, he has caused us to be born again. I broke it down into this little chart for you. He has caused us to be born again, according to his great mercy, to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. We'll break this down. First, he has caused us to be born again. This phrase that if you have a, like a King James Bible or something like that, it might say, it might, I actually didn't look into it, um, <laughs> but it might say the word uh, begot in there or begat. Um, 
because that, that's the word that is translated here from the Greek um, in, in older English. We changed it to caused us to be born again because the word behind it in Greek and, and that kind of old word beget um, refers to the father, a father's role in a birth, right? A, a, a woman can, can give birth to, right? Can, can birth something. A man has to cause to be born. You see the difference? And that's what he's saying here. It's the same word that is used in Matthew chapter 1 in that genealogy when it's saying this person gave, you know, this person, it's this person begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so all through in Matthew chapter 1 and talking about the genealogy of Jesus. It's the same word here, that he has caused us to be born again. It is God's impetus that has caused us to be born again according to his great mercy. Because we didn't deserve to be born again. We didn't deserve a new life. We didn't deserve salvation. He caused us to be born again according to his great mercy. It's mercy. Not only has he caused us to be born again, but he has caused us to be born again according to his great mercy to a living hope. That we are born to something. And this is the idea that we're not just saved to sit on the couch, right? We're saved to something else. It's not just that he saves us and then leaves us. No, he has saved us to a living hope. It's a living hope in that it is growing and flourishing. It's not just simply a hope that is, but it's one that continues to develop and grow as we mature in Christ. This is why you see those older saints who have been walking with the Lord for decades. And they have this solid hope, this solid faith, because it's something that grows within us as we grow in Christ. That's why you run into those older saints who aren't afraid to die. Right? They're a little bit excited about it. Right? A little concerningly so. You're kind of like, well, you seem a little too excited. Right? But they're like, hey, I'm ready to go. Anytime the Lord's ready to take me. You know, they're, they're not suicidal. They're just saying, I'm ready to go. As soon as the Lord's ready for me, can't wait. Because they have this living hope that has grown and lived within them for so long. We've been born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We get this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because he is the example of what we are hoping for. His resurrection gives us hope because he defeated death, and we long to see death defeated once and for all. And when Christ returns, all who have died will be resurrected, will be granted renewed spirits. We, we have been granted renewed spirits, but in the end we'll be granted renewed bodies, resurrected bodies. It won't simply be our spirits that have been regenerated. This is what Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 through 23, where he says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What Paul is saying there specifically is we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have the initial renewal that has happened and that we are changed inside. We've been granted the righteousness of Jesus by the power of his blood. 
if we have accepted him as our Lord and Savior. And so we are renewed within. We have renewed spirits. But our bodies are very much not renewed. Right? Our bodies continue to decay. They continue to face the effects of a broken world, a world that has rebelled against its creator. And so you have, as you're sitting here right now, aches and pains. Right? It was something hurt when you got out of bed this morning for most of you. Most of you, you're like, oh man, again, right? That's because our bodies are still broken. But in the end, they will not be. And Paul says we long for the redemption of our bodies. That's what we will see in the end. That is the hope we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are also... We are also born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And this is adoption language. When he says we've been born again to an inheritance, he's interesting. saying we've been born into the family of God. And as a result, we have been adopted as sons and daughters of the king and are therefore eligible for an inheritance. That's why he uses the term inheritance. He doesn't have to use the term inheritance here. He's speaking of our adoption. We've been adopted into the family of God, and so we are eligible for this inheritance. And it's a better inheritance, superior to an earthly inheritance, because it is imperishable. It will not go bad with time. It will last forever. It's not something that will go bad at some point. It's undefiled. It's not ill-gotten. It's not stained by sin. It is undefiled inheritance. It's unfading. It will last forever. It will not wear out. Or wear down. And then he lastly he says our, our, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And, uh, and right there for a second we're going to take a little bit of a sidetrack. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail we're going to take here for a minute. If you'll bear with me. And talk about heaven. Because he says kept in heaven for you. And, and that uh, anytime the word heaven comes up it's, it's a little bit concerning to me because the, the term heaven has so, uh, been so stained by our culture. We've been so influenced by our culture's view of heaven, even within the church, that it's difficult sometimes for us to understand what does this word mean. And what would, what would Peter mean that it's kept in heaven for you? What does that mean for us? Right, because um, the, the cartoons that we watch as kids immediately pop in our minds as like floating on clouds, and little babies in diapers playing harps, right? And you know intellectually that that's not right, but it's still like kind of where your mind goes. Something like that when you hear the word heaven. So first off, we just look at just that word, and the parentheses, I have the Greek word aranos, which is the Greek word for heaven here. Um, and, and, and when we look at that word in the New Testament, it doesn't um, always refer to, or even usually refer to, the place believers go when they die. Right? We're talking about two things usually when we talk about heaven in that way. We talk about the place believers go when they die right now, and the place where believers go when Jesus returns. Those are two different things. Okay, But this word often is used not to refer to either of those things. It's often referred to up there, to refer to above, the things that are up there. Because that word is the place in Scripture where birds fly and where stars are. 
Okay, so we see this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 2. This is just out of context, but this is where Jesus is using this term. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. The oranos is red. Right, The heavens are red. We also see this in, in, the, um, in the, the Septuagint, where, um, which is the, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that happened before Christ, actually, but as Greek culture influenced and, that, and the language became more common use, they translated the Old Testament into Greek. When they translate the, the, the Genesis 1-1, in the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the heavens and the earth. Because they didn't know, the human authors didn't know, it was a globe. Right? And so whenever he talks about the, the heavens and the earth, it's literally, think of a man standing on the earth going, the heavens and the earth, everything. It still means the same thing as it does for us because it means everything that is. It's just in their, for, for their context, that's all they could, could picture is the heavens and the earth. So this word is not just used to talk about heaven the way that we think of heaven, but used to talk about the sky, essentially. And I think that to some extent that is intentional. We could go so far as to say, well, so heaven and skies are often used, well, it's used literally to talk about the things that are up there, birds, stars, those kind of things. It's also used figuratively to speak of where God resides, even though we know that he is omnipresent, right? So Colossians 3.1 says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, right? So here, the apostle Paul is saying the things that, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Okay? But he's being figurative here in saying that God is above us and that he is over us because we know that God is everywhere all the time. So he's there, but he's also there and there and there and there and there. Right? He's everywhere all the time. But he is really speaking to the fact that God in creating created the skies to be impressive and to remind us of him. We could go so far as to say that God's creation is designed to make us think this way. That God is, God created in such a way that the sky is vast. That it's impressive both during the day and at night. And so it's no coincidence that we think of God when we look at it. It's also no coincidence that even as our technology has increased, it has not ceased to be more impressive. And in fact, increased in its, in its impressiveness. Right, so think about before there were airplanes, okay, and, and no, one, no one could ever go higher than they could jump or climb, right? The, the sky was impressive during the day and at night. It was like it seemed vast and it was mysterious. And they didn't know where it, and they didn't know about the outer space, right? They didn't know any of that stuff. They just knew at night these stars come out during the day it's it's big and there's clouds up there and all this stuff but it's impressive and makes me feel small okay but then we got airplanes and we got telescopes and we even got rockets and if you were rich enough you could even go to outer space and it actually got more impressive 
right, was we learned how big the universe is, how far it is between planets, and how far it is to stars, and how big the universe is, and they keep discovering that it's bigger than they even thought it was, that there's more out there than we could ever even have imagined. We actually, at the, the higher we get, the smaller we feel. And again, that's God's design to make us realize how big he is and how small we are. And so there's no coincidence that when he says, think of what is above and look at the heavens, meaning what is above you, that we think of God and we think of him residing there, even though, again, if it's a globe and all believers are looking above, they're all looking in different directions in the universe. God is everywhere. So when he says that our inheritance is kept in heaven for you, he's being figurative. He's saying God's got it. God's got it for you. He's maybe not talking about a specific location, but he's saying God's got it above. He's got it handled. He is above you. He's mightier than you. He is stronger than you, and he loves you, and he has this inheritance for you. So you can have this hope. You can be born again to this hope, hope in this inheritance through the resurrection of Jesus. We can hold on to these things. In verse 5 here, he says that he then talks about us. Who is this you, right? He says, kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is to be revealed. That we are being guarded by God's power, that God's power is what protects us, protects our heavenly inheritance through faith, that we access this power through faith. This is not that different than when Paul asserts that we are saved by grace through faith, that it is grace that saves us, but that we access this, that grace through faith. And he says that we are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is to be revealed in the last time. Peter is referring here to the already not yet nature of our salvation. Kind of like we were talking about earlier that we have been regenerated within, but not without, that it has not been fully realized yet. That though we are saved positionally, that we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, if we accept his sacrifice for us and his death on the cross for us, make him our Savior and Lord, but there is still, it is still yet to be fully realized. Because when he returns, he will make all things new. He will bring justice, make all things right. There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more darkness or harshness. So very, it is very much that the full extent of our salvation is yet to be revealed. And that we are saved for this salvation that will be revealed in the last time. We'll look next year at verses 6 through 7, various trials. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We can and should rejoice because of what Jesus has done for us. We can rest in his love and peace. We can eagerly await the justice and restoration that he will bring. But in the meantime, we will be grieved by various trials for a little while. 
And that is as a phrase that has to be uh, contextualized here. Because for a little while is uh, relative, right? When you're a little kid and, and your parents say, oh, you got to wait for a little while, you're thinking like two minutes, right? Two minutes, a little while, I can do that. Right? Now, if you like, for example, go to the doctor and they say the doctor will be in in a little while, you brace him for 20 minutes. You know, you're like, okay, there's going to be some time here. And here, we're really talking about God's timeline. We're talking about God's context. And in God's context, a little while is your lifetime. He's not saying to these people that there's something coming for them in the next year that they're going to have to go through. He's saying, during our time on this earth, this is God's illustration. This is what God means when he says, for a little while. We know this. Uh, when we look at passages like Jeremiah 29, 11. I talked earlier about the, like, that light, fluffy hope and then the contextualized, lasting hope. Here's a great example of that because that little, light, fluffy hope is when you just look at verse 11, which says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And you go, God, this feels so good. God has a plan for me, even though he's not writing to you here. Um, he has a plan for He's writing to people a long time ago who were in exile in Babylon. He's not writing to you. I don't know why people look at this and go, oh, God is talking to me. It's not written to you. But anyway. <laughs> but that's why it's light, fluffy hope. Because you, you just take this, rip it out of the Bible, and go, that is God saying that to me. He has plans for me. There are plans for my welfare, not for evil. The plans to give me a future and a hope. Great. That feels good because that's so, it's so vague that I can fill in the blanks with whatever I want. Right? If I just take that verse by itself, give you a future and a hope, I can plug in whatever I want. The future is that I'm rich and the hope is that I have a you know, beautiful wife or something. Like that. I don't know what it, what it is that you, you're waiting for, but whatever, you can fill in the blanks of whatever you want. But if you sync this in the context of the passage that it's in, and you just go one verse earlier to verse 10, he says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, I'll fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. That that plan that God had for them was to stay in exile where they didn't want to be, where they were complaining they were going to have to be, that they have to stay there for 70 years. Meaning that if you're old enough to understand it, you're dying there. Right? If you were old enough to understand this message at the time Jeremiah wrote it to the exiles in Babylon, you're going, okay, how is God going to come through for us? And then Jeremiah's like, guys, I've got great news for you. God's going to come through for you. He's got a great plan for you. When 70 years are completed, he's going to bring you back. They go like, well, I'm 45. 70 years? I don't think I'm going to make it. He's not going to bring me back. He's going to bring my kids back. He's going to bring my grandkids back, really, more than anybody, especially lifespans back then. Right? That wasn't, this is God's context. For God, that's, this is a great plan. This is his loving plan for his people was that a whole generation and possibly some of the second generation are going to die in exile in Babylon. This is God's context and this is that lasting hope. You have to have God's view of things which is much bigger than just your lifetime. 
It's much bigger than just us, just our generation. He says that for that little while, which again is our lifetime, we will be grieved by various trials. And again, Peter is writing to a big group of people. He's writing to a whole uh, region of churches. And so he's not being specific here. He's saying like, you're all going to go through different things, but you're going to have various trials. And he's certainly, to, for all these people at this time, he's writing about persecution, or they're going to be persecuted by the Roman government for the fact that they're Christians. But he doesn't say that specifically because he wants to encompass all of the trials that they're going to go through, all of the darkness they're going to have to face that isn't a direct consequence of their sin, right? That's, that's stuff we bring on ourselves, but there's plenty that we have to go through that's not directly our responsibility, that just happens to us. And we go, whoa, what's happening? Is God mad at me? And here it says, no, this is just what it is to be alive, that we go through various trials, but we've been born again to a living hope that will get us through those trials, and that in the end, that our ultimate hope is when Jesus returns and we get that inheritance. He says that as we go through these things, that the, it will result in the tested genuineness of our faith. We go through these difficult things and our faith is tested, but it comes out stronger and more genuine than it was before. He compares it to the way that gold is refined. And actually, uh, Peter here kind of like slams gold a little bit. Right? He says, gold, which though perishable, is tested by fire, which doesn't hold up in, uh, in a physics sense, in a like, scientific sense. Gold is like one of the most lasting substances, you know, so strong and pure. Like That's why you can refine it in fire. You can burn off all the Im other impurities because it's so lasting. But here, Peter's like, gold is perishable compared to what I'm talking about. Compared to the tested genuineness of your faith, gold is perishable and worthless. Saying that's, this is, we're talking about something that's much better than that. And then he says that as we go through these things, that it will result in praise and glory and honor. That as the tested genuineness of our faith is revealed through these various trials, it will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whose praise and glory and honor? Most of the time in Scripture when we read those, you'd think, well, it's for Jesus. But here, it's not. He's talking about our praise and glory and honor. Saying that as we go through these things, in the end, when Jesus is revealed, that God is going to praise us. That he is going to give us glory, give us honor because we have gone through these things. And, and, and you might be thinking, like, that seems crazy. But it's not the only time in Scripture that, it's, that this is talked about. We can look at Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5, where it says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you that he'll rejoice over you. Zephaniah speaks of it as well in chapter 3, verse 17, where he says, Yahweh your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That God himself will sing over you. 
We'll look lastly here at verses 8 through 12. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter here starts off by marveling over the fact that these believers that he's writing to believe in and love Jesus even though they've never seen him. That was true of them, and it's true of us. It wasn't true of Peter, right? He was eyewitness to almost all of the most significant events of Jesus' life. And even then, we know he had a shaky time of it, with faith. And so he is blown away by the fact that these people don't know, didn't never seen Jesus face to face, that they would believe in him and love him anyway. And he says that, even though they haven't seen him, that they rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That they rejoice in spite of the trials that they face. That they've set their hope on the future glory that will be revealed. They, they have this joy that is overwhelming and overpowering. Even in the face of these trials, they can still have this joy. And that they obtain as the outcome of their faith the salvation of their souls. The outcome of your faith is salvation. And salvation is by grace through faith. As, Peter, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not about what we have done. The outcome of our faith is that we access that grace. And the grace is what saves us. The grace that Jesus died for us when we did not deserve it. That he rose again on our behalf, defeating death for us. And that if we believe that that is true, that he will grant us his righteousness. He will give us a new spirit. He will give us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. Give us a new heart. Grant us his righteousness. And in the end, when we stand before the judgment seat of God, we will be covered by his blood and seen as righteous in the eyes of God. That's the salvation of our souls. It's the outcome of our faith. Peter notes then at the end of this passage how remarkable our salvation is. He says the prophets had been searching and inquiring for centuries. They sought to know who the Messiah would be. They wanted to know who is this Messiah going to be going to be. They wanted to know when and under what circumstances the Messiah was going to come. They sought after God. They listened to the Spirit and details were revealed to them, right? They, they found out information, but they've been looking and searching for centuries. It got to the point where they realized they're not serving themselves, but you. They got to the point where they recognized this is not something we're going to see in our lifetimes, but future generations will. That's why Peter says they weren't serving themselves, they were serving you. Because they sought the Spirit. They wrote down what they could find. And then it was revealed in Jesus. 
the prophets provide invaluable evidence of Jesus' authenticity because we could see that Jesus fulfilled these scriptures that he could never have set up to fulfill these scriptures. They were written across so many years by so many different people, and they all came together to fulfill. This is who the Messiah was going to be. And so it is amazing to, 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 to Peter that this has happened. He says, these are things into which angels long to look. Because the details of God's plan were not revealed even to the angels. And all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah had been fulfilled in Jesus. This was amazing to Peter. It should be amazing to us. It's, it's easier to understand why it was more amazing to Peter. Because it's, uh, it's, it's maybe kind of like, um, like, like computers or something. right? Those of you who, who were, are old enough that like, you didn't grow up with them. They're like a lot more amazing to you than like my kids. They're just like, oh yeah, computer. Right, that's, what is that? Who cares? Right, but, but when you didn't grow up with that technology and then now you see it, you're like, this is unbelievable. You guys have no idea. And, and but for those of us who grew up with it, you're like, yeah, it's not a computer. Who cares? I can fill in whatever technology works for you there. But that's, that's Peter's reality, right? It, in his childhood and even in his, you know, early life, the scriptures were something that, that they were still looking for. Who is the Messiah going to be? But now he's seen it fulfilled. And now he's seen it spread. He's seen people catch it and, and, and see. He's seen it gone even to the Gentiles, which was un, unthinkable for when he was a kid. And now he's seeing it. He's saying, this is amazing. These are the things that angels long to look at. And you have a front row seat. And you get to see it all fulfilled after the fact. So this is amazing. should be amazing to us as well. We'll wrap up with this. Three takeaways for today's message. Number one, place your hope in the inheritance that is waiting for us. Fuel that living hope and, and set it firmly in the inheritance that is waiting for us and what is going to be revealed when Jesus returns because during our lifetime, we're going to face various trials. We cannot put our hope in, in the false gospel of prosperity that is so common uh, in America today that says you will be happy, healthy, wealthy if you follow Jesus. You're going to be blessed here and now. That's not in Scripture. That's that fluffy false hope that is going to fail you because it's not going to work. The lasting hope that we have, the living hope that we can rest in is in this inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. And if we keep our hope there, we can for a little while face these various trials. Number two, faithfully endure the various trials of life. Recognize that it, that that will result in that tested genuineness of your faith that is more valuable than gold. And lastly, rejoice in the miracle of your salvation and see it for the miracle that it is. How incredible what Jesus did, not just in, in what he did, but in the way that he did it, in the fulfillment of scriptures, all of these things. In just a minute, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take communion together. Um, and then we'll have one final song. After that song, if you'd like prayer for anything, we've got a great prayer team that'll be available right over here. They would love to pray for you. Um, just come on up and, and let them know and they'd love to pray for you. Would you pray with me now? 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that we can dive into this rich uh, passage in, in, in 1 Peter. And I pray that we would seek to found ourselves in that living hope that we have been born again to. That we would look to the inheritance that we have kept for us, guarded for us by Jesus. I pray that we would be vessels to take that living hope to the world and share it with others who are so desperately in need of it. Pray all these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.